Let's go to the Lord and give our time to him tonight as we begin. Father, we thank you that we can sing truth about you because we know who you are, because we know your son. Lord, tonight as we study your word, we pray that you would help us tune our hearts uh, into the truth here. And uh, Lord, all the distractions of the world that are around us, help us to tune those out and to have our hearts open, uh, Lord, for the truth you desire to teach us tonight. You've promised a blessing to those who study this book, the Revelation. So, Lord, we pray for that blessing to be true in our lives as we study it. In Christ's name, amen. You can turn to Revelation chapter 6. That's where we are tonight, Revelation chapter 6. In our last study together, we began looking at this chapter, Revelation 6, and in doing so, we began then the study of a period of future history, as we know, that is called the Tribulation Period. That is a seven-year period, still to come, has not happened yet. It leads right up into the second coming of Christ when the glorified Jesus will literally set foot on this earth again. As I have previously mentioned, this seven-year period, the Tribulation, is actually broken down into two halves. Each half, therefore, is about three and a half years in length. The first half is referred to by Jesus in the book of Matthew as the beginning of birth pangs, comparing it to the uh, process of giving birth and the intensifying of the contractions and so forth leading up to the birth. That's the first half. The second half of the seven-year tribulation period is often referred to as the Great Tribulation, since the severity of what will globally happen here on earth will dramatically intensify, even though the first half will still be severe, second half more severe. It is the second half, the great tribulation, that is also many times referred to as the beginning of the day of the Lord. Now, this entire seven-year period was prophesied in the book of Daniel. So really what, what I want you to do is hold your place there in Revelation 6, but If you'd like, turn to Daniel chapter 9 with me for a few moments tonight. And I certainly do not have time to say everything that could be said about the text here in Daniel chapter 9. Especially starting at verse 24 through verse 27. It does relate to what we're studying. There's a prophecy here. The prophecy of the 70 weeks. Daniel 9 verse 24. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. It's the history of the nation of Israel, really. We have to understand the term weeks here is not in a form, a grammatical form, that would actually refer to an actual week that we understand consisting of seven days. To get that kind of week, you could look over to how it's said in Daniel chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. It's said differently here. Here in this verse, it's a way of referring to a measurement of years, a week of years. In other words, each week consists of not seven days, but seven years. So 70 weeks equates to 70 sets of seven-year periods. Do the math, that's 490 years. Again, I don't have time to go into this in detail, but what Daniel states here is a measurement of time, 490 years, that begins about 445 B.C. because of something that happened then. It's when the Persian king decreed that Jerusalem could finally be rebuilt. You find that 
in Nehemiah chapter 2. So around 40, 45 B.C., the first fulfillment of the measurement of all those weeks was just seven of the weeks, seven sets of seven. Seven times seven is 49, 49 years. And that led up into the time of Malachi and the completion of the Old Testament. The span of time continued then with 62 more of those weeks. So seven, 49 years happened. And then there was a span of 62 more of those weeks, 434 years, which brings the total to 483 of those years, which brings us to Messiah's triumphal entrance. I've got to check my math on that last number. I think it's right. Up to Messiah's triumphal entrance into the city of Jerusalem, that happened on a calendar in the month Nisan, the ninth day of Nisan, 9 DC, Nisan, about 30 AD. So all of that, you've got all these years leading up, prophesied, did happen, leading up to Messiah on the scene officially. Jump to verse 25 of Daniel 9. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree, that's Nehemiah chapter 2, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince... There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plows and moat, even in times of distress. Again, this time designation, seven weeks and 62 weeks, for a total of 69 weeks, began counting down, we could say. Starting with that decree to build Jerusalem, Nehemiah chapter 2, about 445 B.C., until Messiah triumphantly enters Jerusalem. 69 weeks. Then, look at verse 26, the Messiah will be cut off. Verse 26, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be a war, there will be war. Desolations are determined for that. That term cut off refers to death, so it clearly refers to the crucifixion of Jesus. That came then, if you add all this together, it came long after that first seven weeks mentioned in Daniel, and then the next 62 weeks for the 69, and then this event, the crucifixion, leaves one more week then in Daniel's prophecy to make 70. One more week of years, one more set of seven years in the prophecy. But there's some things said in that verse we just read, verse 26, that did not happen in just seven more years after the crucifixion. The destruction of the city and the sanctuary did not happen in the seven years right after the crucifixion. It came 37 years later, 70 AD. What happened to the seven then, the last week of the 70 weeks in Daniel? 37 years later, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, 70 AD. That was a momentous moment in Israel's history. But what happened there did not complete Daniel's prophecy. It was a very important event, but it doesn't fit the time schedule listed. Neither do all the items that we skipped over, by the way. I had to delete a bunch of stuff this afternoon in verse 24 to comment on things like bringing in of righteousness. Didn't happen. This reality indicates that a long gap began 
After the crucifixion and all of its follow-up events, like the resurrection, the ascension, the coming of the Holy Spirit, just lump all that together, a long gap began, a gap of time in God's plan that we're in right now, called the age of the Spirit or the church age. And this age is going to continue until it's time for that last set of seven years. The final week of Daniel's prophecy eventually does occur, the 70th week. It is this last period of seven years, the seven years of tribulation that we're studying. It'll lead up to the second coming of Christ. This final week of seven years will end with sin's judgment and Christ's righteous reign on earth. But verse 27 goes on to fill in some more information about this final week of seven years, the tribulation. Look at Daniel 9, 27. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. In other words, this final week, the seven years that's still to come, will be the time of Antichrist. And again, I'm not taking the time to prove everything I'm saying. That is ultimately who that prince is back in verse 26, and it's who the pronoun he refers to in this verse. The prince, he, Antichrist, is going to make, literally, it's a word that means to cause something to prevail, a covenant, a pact, a covenant will be in place during this future seven-year period. It refers to a pact he's going to make with Israel, a pact promising them peace. We're going to find out later in Revelation that the pact, the covenant, doesn't actually last the whole seven years. But he told them it would. He'll tell them it will. It's future. Just a side comment, it brings us back as well to the Olivet Discourse mentioned last time, Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 15, speaks of this future evil leader and something he's going to cause to happen in this seven-year period. He makes a covenant with Israel. It's a lie. Matthew 24, verse 15 says, The abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. This event, the abomination of desolation, happens. Now, there was a a near fulfillment of that in not long after Daniel's time. It, It describes this abomination of desolation. Daniel mentions it. I think we'll see that in a moment. The desecration of the temple, that was the second century B.C. You know, in the 200 years before Christ, the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple. That historical event was important, but it really just foreshadowed what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 24, 15, what's going to happen in this last set of seven years, the yet future abomination of desolation at the midpoint of this seven-year period. The future happening will be similar to that act by Antiochus Epiphanes in the 200 years before Christ. But in this last seven years, at that time, the middle of it, the final Antichrist, he's going to set himself up in the temple to be worshipped as God. I'll read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 for you, verses 3 and 4. Paul makes a comment about that event. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, we'll be back to Daniel in a moment. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as God. God's going to remove 
some restraint during this seven-year period on Antichrist, is going to permit Antichrist to do all this and his followers to run rampant. I'll read another portion of 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 and 7. And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time, though, this is future, he will be revealed, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Now, back to Daniel again. We're in Daniel chapter 9. This figure that's coming in this future last seven-year period is actually referred to in Daniel chapter 7, verse 8, as the little horn. It's a different part of Daniel's prophecy. Daniel 7, verse 8, while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. That's Daniel 7, verse 8. It goes on in Daniel 7, verses 20 and 21. Verse 20 refers to ten horns were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, this other horn, that verse 8 called the little horn, verse 21, I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Daniel 7, verse 24 and 25, and I do, I'm going to comment on these just a little bit. Daniel 7, 24 and 25. For as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High, that's God. He'll wear down the saints of the highest one. He will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And listen to this. And they will be given into his, ta- his hand. This is in the future. It's going to all happen, especially in the middle when something happens. Antichrist will be seen for who he is. They'll be given into his hand, listen, for a time, times, and half a time. That last phrase, a time, times, and half a time, is another way for Daniel referred to the length of time in years. A time is one year. Times, plural, that's two years. Half a time, half a year, altogether, that's three and a half years. This refers to the fact that there's a division in this final seven year, the final week. The seven years of Antichrist power leading up to the second coming. And that seven year period is divided in half. The first half is three and a half year. And then there's a second half, three and a half years, where it's going to get even much worse. So Daniel's prophecy here in Daniel 27, 24 refers to the second three and a half years. A time, a times, and a half a time. The last half of Antichrist power, which is what Jesus referred to, and starting in Matthew 24, verse 15, the abomination of desolation kicks off that second half and it'll culminate with the coming of Christ. So now Daniel 9 again, where I left off. Daniel 9, verse 27. It also references this momentous event that will kick off the second half of the tribulation. Verse 27, 27, but in the middle of the week, it says... The middle of the seven years, in the middle of this future seven-year period, something dramatic will happen under Antichrist leadership found in the rest of verse 27. He'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. This covenant he makes with Israel, he was going to end it. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. A lot of complicated language. My purpose tonight is not to teach Daniel but just to point out some things that was prophesying about what we're studying. That's a way in that verse of saying he, Antichrist, breaks the covenant he made with Israel, and in that covenant he was allowing them, even wooing them, at first letting them resume their 
he's going to let them resume their ancient sacrificial system. They're going to love him, but he's going to turn on them and end it halfway through. By the way, it's mentioned two more times in Daniel. Daniel 11, verse 31. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. Daniel 12, verse 11. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished abolished, and the abomination of desolation is set, set up, there will be 1,290 days. Do that math. That's three and a half years. So when the abomination of desolation happens halfway through, three and a half years of that final 70th week of Daniel's prophecy will remain, 1,290 days, because it's the midpoint of the tribulation. And as I said, the second half then becomes known as the Great Tribulation. All of that, just a moment of it, to review, because it's the tribulation period, Daniel's 70th week, that we're studying here on Wednesday nights now in Revelation, starting with Revelation chapter 6. That's what we've been looking at last time and tonight and one more time. Now, you remember how it started. John saw a vision of Jesus in the beginning and After that, after Jesus gave him messages for seven churches that existed at that time, and after John was taken up in a vision to heaven where he saw God on the throne and the risen Jesus, and after all of that, you remember he saw Jesus go over and take a scroll that was sealed with seven seals, a scroll that is the record of all the judgments that's going to be poured out on the earth on rebellious people during this future seven-year period. Judgments deserved by rebellious people who will be alive on the earth at that time. And then John saw Jesus open the scroll. And he began to do it. And we see the unfolding of seal by seal of judgments. Each one describing different aspect of future judgment that's going to be experienced globally, not just Jerusalem, all over the earth. Now, I've got the slides again just to remind you where we are in this whole study. So we'll put those up for you so we can just at least see the overall outline of the thing. Part one, you know, the whole book, this is the division of the book, is the vision, what you've seen. That's a verse in Scripture in Revelation. Write down, John, what you've seen, what is now, and what will take place later. That's the division of the book. John gives it to us. So what you've seen, that's chapter one. What's now, that's the churches that Jesus addressed in chapters two and three. The future, what will take place later, starts at chapter 4, goes all the way through to the end of the book. That part, that future part, break it down a little bit more. We studied chapters 4 and 5 with Danny and then Kevin. Adoration, Jesus in heaven, glorified in heaven. Chapter 6 through 18, though, is this last week of Daniel's prophecy, the 70th week, tribulation, judgment on earth. Chapter 19, we'll get to the second coming. Chapter 20, the Millennial Kingdom. More of chapter 20, the Great White Throne Judgment. And finally, chapters 21 and 22, the Eternal State. So again, part three, we're drilling down on that, what will take place later. The Adoration, chapters four and five. But the Tribulation that we're in, starting at chapter six, there's judgments, different phases of judgments. So we've been in phase one, looking at the seven seals. We saw the first seal, false peace. This was beyond just what he was telling Israel. This was something global. So at the beginning, it's not just Israel that he's wooing. He's going to lie to them later. 
But in this first seal, John saw a rider on a white horse, you'll remember. I'm just reviewing for you. It was summoned by one of those living beings. There were four living beings that appeared in chapter 4 and 5 around the throne. <coughs> white horse. The rider and the white horse represented peace, a global peace. A false peace because it's not going to last. But this is actually going to happen that the whole earth is going to believe Antichrist, and is going to believe that finally world peace has happened. I believe something traumatic has to happen right before all this. Something unbelievable. Something that's going to cause everybody to panic. To cause them to actually listen and believe that this man has the answer. That's where I believe the rapture happens personally. But this is something separate But in a sense, going on at the same time that this covenant is worked out with Israel, false peace, the second seal, we studied that, that peace ends because there was another horse, a second rider on a red horse, once again summoned by one of the living beings around the throne. That horse in the color represents war. There's going to be global war, like the world has never seen. And that war certainly destroys the false peace, so tonight we continue with the third seal, now new material call it famine, either catastrophic or devastating famine. Now the opening of the third seal, this is where we are now, followed by the summons of the third living being presents a very distressing picture. We're at chapter 6, verse 5 now, making new progress. When he broke the third seal, he being Jesus, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, so two of the living beings there around the throne, worshiping God, uh, one by one they summon these different riders in the horse. This is the third one now. He said, come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. That word behold is thrown in there. It's a word helping us understand just how John is increasingly shocked by what he's seeing. I mean, this writer is presenting an ominous appearance. It would be something like, I looked and, whoa, unbelievable, a black horse. Now, as I said last time, there's four horses all overall with these four riders in the first four seals. But the riders on the four horses are not Antichrist, literally himself. Antichrist is behind all this. We'll study more about that in Revelation in the future. All the horses and riders represent forces. They're personifications of of forces and movements. Like false peace and violent war. But now this rider is on a horse that's black, a color that suggests mourning and grief and lamentation. And here it's used to represent suffering, and we'll see this in a moment, suffering caused by famine. Global famine, which is confirmed in a moment in verse 6. There is going to be now, when the third seal is broken, we could say, the scroll is undone more here, there's going to be an extreme shortage of food. Many people are going to be filled with anxiety, sorrow. Whatever provisions are available at that time are going to be so expensive that only the wealthy will be able to afford them. Kind of makes sense that famine would be next in the logical sequence. These Seals are being broken sequentially. Famine's the logical sequence of a worldwide global war. 
I mean, during war like that, food supplies are destroyed. God plans to use famine as part of his judgment on the earth in the future. It won't be the first time God's used famine. Listen to Isaiah chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord God of hosts is going to remove the whole supply of bread and water. He's done it before. Ezekiel 14, verse 13. If a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, and send famine against it. So it should be no surprise to us that God, it's in his arsenal of judgments. But even though famine has occurred on this earth before in the past, the world has never known it at the level that it's going to occur in this last seven-year period. And these first seals are in the first three and a half years. That middle point hasn't happened in what we're studying yet, the abomination of desolation. This is the beginning of birth pangs part, the first three and a half years. This will be the most devastating famine in all of human history, and Jesus predicted that in Matthew 24 as well. There will be famines. In Revelation 6 here, to portray the level of scarcity, that, scarcity that's going to exist at that time, notice in verse 5 that the idea of scales is used. John witnessed the scales or a balance the writer holds in his hand. Verse 5, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. Now that term for scales is the same word that describes the bar, the, the yoke that's worn by two cattle, you know, to keep them plowing the same direction at the same time. Here it refers to a bar, but bar with scales on both ends, or perhaps it could be a a weight on one end and a pan suspended on the other, you know, either form of that. But this pair of scales is a symbol. It's a symbol that represents the idea of rationing that's going to have to happen globally. Due to the global famine, there will be careful weighing of the food because it's in such short supply. And you can visualize this. Starving people in lines, standing in food lines, not able to find enough food. Then verse 6, John next heard a special announcement, verse 6, and I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures. Again, we saw back in chapter 4, verse 6, four living creatures stationed around the throne. We've seen these three living, cre- these living creatures, one uh, living beings, one uh, summons the first horse and rider, representing false peace, another living being calling forth the second horse and rider, violent war, but this time... It doesn't say it's coming from one of those living beings. It says, like that, something like, the voice is not coming from them. It says, but from the center. It's the voice of the one sitting on the throne in the center. This is the voice of God himself. He speaks now. That's confirming the fact that this famine, it's a direct judgment from him. And we see how devastating the conditions are going to be. Here's what this voice says. Verse 6, a quart of wheat for a denarius. Wheat is symbolic here for our purposes, but when John lived, wheat was the main food of the ancient world. So it symbolizes whatever is going to be the primary food sources for people at this time in the future. And a quart of wheat in John's day, that was barely enough to sustain someone for a day. A denarius was a one day's wage. So in this future tribulation period, famine condition prices are going to require a full day's pay to purchase just a minimum ration of whatever their food's going to be in different cultures. Again, it's symbolic. P. 
people's labor will barely provide enough food for themselves, likely not enough food to feed the rest of the family members. In fact, those with families or little money will have to purchase something else, something less expensive, verse 6, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Barley was, in John's day, was low level. It was what you would feed the animals. It's low in nutritional value. For people who had to eat it, the minimum daily food requirement was more than what you'd eat for wheat. It was three times as much barley to try to sustain life. Therefore, this is symbolic of the fact that in this future time of judgment, a person's wages will barely feed three people with low-quality food if they're trying to feed their family members. So together, you put those ideas together, confirms that the purchasing power of people's wages during this time of the judgment and the tribulation will be far below what is normal. Price of commodities are going to be so high. You could say it this way, the basic food staples are going to become priceless luxuries during this famine. Interesting, though, verse 6 goes on, the famine is not universal in one sense. It's global, but not universal in one sense, verse 6. This is God speaking, but do not damage the oil and the wine. Not yet. Interesting. During this time of future judgment, a segment of the population is going to be protected for a while. They'll be doing better. And that protected group is the wealthy for a while. They're the ones most characterized by indulging in the finer things of life, which are represented here in oil and wine. In John's day, olive oil was an important substance. It was certainly important for lighting of lamps. It was a medicinal substance. It was used to anoint people at special feasts. Wine was a very common drink, but also associated with feast, feast at which people would drink to excess. Symbolically, the oil and the wine in this vision represent that those who do have more money will be able to buy basic commodities, but they're also going to still be characterized by self-indulgence since oil and wine were more in the category of luxuries than necessities like barley and wheat. So they're understood to be extras. So the, the idea is that the rich will still maintain their lifestyles for a while to some degree, even in this future time of judgment while others are starving. So the picture is one of great inequity, uh, inequity that's going to exist during this period. The poor are going to have it extremely hard in a way that will be unique in history up to that time. The wealthy are going to experience for a while no interruption. They're not going to suffer as much here. They will later. That's the third seal. Devastating famine, catastrophic famine. Each one of these seals, we're seeing an increase, a conspicuous increase in severity of judgments being poured out on the earth. Here's the fourth seal, widespread death, widespread death. The fourth seal in the vision follows the familiar pattern. Look at verse 7. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature. Now it's back to one of the living beings saying, come. And I looked, verse 8, and behold, now an ashen horse. The Greek term for ashen is where we get our English terms chlorophyll or even chlorine. Here in this verse, it's it's depicting a pale color, a very sickly sort of yellow-green color. 
So the color of this horse is portraying the color that's associated with decomposition of a corpse. That makes sense. Violent war, catastrophic famine, and now death on a massive scale. That'll be the consequence of global war and famine. And the name of the horse's rider also makes sense. Verse 8, and he who sat on it had the name death. This rider personifies death. And the gruesome and terrifying nature of the scene increases. And the other thing Jesus, uh, John saw here, verse 8, and Hades was following after him. Hades is a word used in Scripture to talk about the realm of the dead. You could just say it's, it's like the idea of the grave. So here's the grave following along death. It makes sense that death and Hades go together. They're paired in other verses, even in Revelation. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, Christ says, I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. We'll see it again in chapter 20, before that even, but in chapter 20, verses 13 and 14 of Revelation, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So back to our text. This is a gruesome scene. Each seal is releasing even more severe judgment, and we're in just in the first half of the tribulation. Verse 8, authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence. Fourth of the earth, how many is that going to be? Well, it depends on the population at this time, whenever it happens in the future. If it happened right now, earth has about 8 billion people on it. So if all this happened today, the staggering total of the deaths at this part of the tribulation is around 2 billion people. Is it really hard for us to think that that can happen? I mean, in an age of nuclear weapons and chemical and biological weapons, this is totally and sadly believable. Look at verse 8. It gives the tools that death's going to use to accomplish this many deaths to kill with a sword and with famine and with pestilence. The first three, sword, famine, and pestilence, they're linked together many times in Scripture. Jeremiah 14, 12, I'm going to make an end of them by the sword, famine, and pestilence. There are other verses like that. So it won't be unusual for God to use these tools to bring judgment upon the earth. The sword representing death by violent means, maybe by warfare, famine, I've already discussed. It's just that under this fourth seal, these conditions are going to be intensified over what we've seen already. The third term, pestilence, is going to add even more misery to this time. Interesting, the word for pestilence actually translates the same Greek word for death earlier in verse 8. But here it's used for a more specific kind of death, death by disease. It's a broad term. It could encompass, encompass other natural disasters like earthquakes and stuff and volcanic eruptions, floods. The term can even capture biological and chemical and weapons, but primarily it's the thought of disease. Again, that shouldn't be hard for us to believe that disease could also be involved with sword and famine to cause widespread death. I mean, already in human history, we've seen disease kill. In our history, disease has killed more people then all the wars added up. That's true of the Civil War. 
Pam and I toured Gettysburg recently, and we learned a lot. And that's one of the things I remember learning, that more soldiers died from disease than were killed in all the battles of the Civil War. Early 1900s, 1918, 1919, the great influenza epidemic, 30 million people died, estimated. That's more than three times as many soldiers who were killed in World War I in the early 1900s. There's other examples of that. So in the future, when God judges the sinful world, pours out his wrath, the world is going to experience sweeping plagues that will assail the world population in a way that's far beyond anything ever experienced before. It's going to be a time of awful misery. And there's a fourth and very interesting element, a tool that's going to be used, verse 8, and by the wild beast of the earth. There's it's kind of strange when you read that. It's easier to understand the sword and the famine and pestilence. What in the world are the wild beasts of the earth? There's been, you know, it's hard to know for certain. Some say it refers to rats. My wife would say that's one of the worst things that exist on the earth, rats and raccoons, those two things. She has no use for either one of them, particularly one raccoon that lives on our property. They've had a standoff more than once. I mean, rats, I mean, they thrive in all the populated areas. They consume the food supplies. They spread disease. That was the famous, you know, Black Death back in the 14th century. Outbreak of bubonic bubonic plague, a rat-borne disease, wiped out a fourth to a third of the population of Europe in the 14th century. Maybe rats. We know God's used serpents before, right? Numbers 21, verse 6, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Some people, that's their greatest fear, snakes. I don't mind snakes. You could use swarms of locusts. He did that in Egypt. There's a lot of possibilities here. This is an interesting verse. God did say this in Deuteronomy 32, verse 24. Listen to this. Deuteronomy 32, 24. They will be wasted by famine and consumed by plague and bitter destruction and the teeth of beast I will send upon them with the venom of crawling things of the dust. He's done things like this. The case could be made that this fourth element could just be symbolic of people, vicious people who are like beasts. God does use the beast imagery in Scripture to portray nations like in Jeremiah 5, verse 6, a, a nation that he's going to use, he calls them like a wild beast. It's a pagan nation he'll use in his judgment. It doesn't really matter, regardless of what beasts refer to here. The main point is that all of this is pointing to a drastic increase of intensity and in judgment, an increase in the suffering on the earth. And the magnitude of this catastrophe can hardly be grasped in our minds today. Nothing comparable has happened throughout history. Now, as we saw in the prophecy back in Daniel 9, there are going to be these peaceful conditions between Israel and Antichrist during the first half of the tribulation. They're they're going to like him because of what he allows them to do. And so while that's going on, all these devastating judgments are going on as well. But we already know that peaceful covenant is going to be broken at the midpoint of the tribulation. Now, we can't assign this fourth seal to the period of something in the past. And people try to do that. 
They just don't want to think that this is really prophecy, even though the book says it is. It's just that there's never been anything like this. Simultaneously, I mean, one releasing, and then, then another one, and then another one, and another one. There's this consecutive opening of the seal, some of them going on all at the same time. No, this is the third seal and the fourth seal. It's the beginning of the birth pangs during the first half of the tribulation. That brings us to the fifth seal tonight. And we'll just introduce. For lack of a better term, I'm calling it sanctified longing. This seal's different. At least when you read it, I've told you that all the seals in Revelation 6 have to do with judgment being poured out on the rebellious people of the earth. The judgments are not aimed at God's people. The judgments are aimed at rebellious people, lost people. His stored up wrath being poured out. You might not see it at first, but this fifth seal also, though it's different, it still is related to God pouring out judgment. In this seal, what we find is the anticipation or the longing for the coming great day of God's wrath, the second half of tribulation, the day of the Lord, the longing for this, the great tribulation. Jesus called it in Matthew 24, 21. We see it in chapter 7, verse 14 of Revelation. Those who come out of the great tribulation, Revelation 7, 14. So the first four seals, false peace, you got the war, the famine, the death, all taking place in the first three and a half years, the beginning of birth pains. And then the full force of God's judgment is still to come on to be unleashed in the second half. And this fifth seal marks the midpoint, the bridge between the two. It bridges the gap between the beginning of God's wrath in the first half and the full fury being revealed in the second half. Now, just like the horsemen of the first four seals, the four horsemen of the apocalypse they're known as, I said they represent, they personify forces. This fifth seal also represents a force, but a different kind of force. It's the force of the prayers of God's saints for him, God, to do it, to get vengeance on rebellious mankind. Verse 9, when the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain. Stop there. This part of the vision includes an altar. And, and it's, it's, it's not on heaven. I'll make another statement. Of, I mean, not on earth. This is heaven. His attention all, all of a sudden to heaven, not all the judgment going on in earth. There's this altar, but the, it doesn't tell us what kind of altar is being symbolized here. It's not one of the altars of the Old Testament temple or tabernacle because this scene in heaven is not an exact parallel to that. They had no throne. What's most likely is that the altar John saw here is a symbolic representation of the Old Testament altar of incense. Exodus 40, verse 5. You shall set the gold altar of incense before the ark of the testimony. Incense in the Old Testament was associated with prayer. Psalm 141, verse 2. May my prayer be counted as incense before you. So it's this idea of incense, the altar of incense even, representing prayers, and that makes sense because we'll see in verse 10 next time, you can look ahead, those under this altar in this vision, they're crying out. 
They're intensely praying for something. Now note that this part of the vision, like I said, reverts to the heavenly throne room. John's vi- his vision here, but his, his focus is, is turned to not the earth, but, but to some dead people who are crying out to God. Dead people don't do that on the earth. These are individuals who have direct access to the throne. That's only possible in heaven. And our text refers to these individuals as souls under the altar. Now, if you look ahead, verse 11, you'll find these individuals are given a white robe. I'll have to explain that next time. But you'd think that 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 could imply that these individuals are more than souls. They must have bodies. I mean, you can't put a robe on just a soul. But that misses the symbolic nature of what John's seeing here. These are souls that refers to that part of us that animates our physical body. But these individuals are dead now. They've given up their physical lives. And in the course of Revelation, their bodies have not been resurrected yet. Who are they? They're martyrs. But some people get this wrong. These do not represent Christians being killed now during the church age. That conclusion ignores the fact that for these souls, their persecutors are still alive on the earth at this time in the future when they're praying, when they're crying out. And their crying out is for vengeance. That's different than those that are martyred while we're here on earth. You have an example of that in Stephen in Acts chapter 7. As he was being martyred, what did he cry out? In the church age, in the time of God's grace, falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Before the time of the tribulation, that's a prayer for God to somehow be gracious to people. Not this one. The martyrs associated with this fifth seal are in heaven, yet their persecutors are still alive on earth, even as the prayers are being uttered. These individuals are those who are going to come to Christ and die during the first half of the tribulation. See, even during the pouring out of different forms of judgment, God's elect will still come to Christ. So these martyrs are being killed. They're going to beseech God, pour out your wrath on these who are doing that. There's a longing here. It's a holy, sanctified longing because what they're asking for is God's will to be done. That's exactly what God's will is for the time of tribulation. It's not a time of grace. There's a judgment of sinners. It's going to be God's will to use these prayers of these martyrs to do exactly what is his will to do. So just think about this. In addition to divine judgment, false peace, deluding people, then the war breaking that, and famine and disease dominating the unbelieving world, there's going to be this widespread persecution going on as well during all that to people who come to Christ. Persecution that Satan is behind through his demons and certainly his antichrist. Verse 9, Jesus goes on to give two reasons why they're going to be slain. Look at verse 9. And both relate to them coming to Christ. Verse 9. Why are they going to be killed? Because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. The word of God, it means that they're going to be killed because of their commitment to truth and scripture. 
They're going to get saved. They're going to come to know the truth, and they're going to correctly interpret what's going on around them. They're going to tell, what, tell the world what's going on, and the world's not going to like it. They're going to start proclaiming that this is God's judgment. They're going to call people to repent and believe the gospel, and Antichrist and his followers are not going to tolerate it, and they're going to kill them one after another. There's a second reason, because of the testimony which they had maintained. That, that's a phrase that just refers to their loyalty to Jesus. You find this phrase, testimony of Jesus, in other places, Revelation 1, verse 9. It says that, Revelation 1, verse 9, John, the author here, was on the island of Patmos. You'll remember he was exiled there. It says in Revelation 1, 9, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The same thing. Toward the end of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 4, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. So for these martyrs, their commitment to biblical truth and a biblical worldview and their proclamation of that and their love for Jesus will provoke hatred and hostility while all this judgment is going on, resulting in their deaths. Jesus said that, all of it discourse, They'll deliver you over and kill you. You'll be hated by all nations globally because of my name. So this persecution associated with the fifth seal begins in the first half of the tribulation. It's going to escalate even worse in the second half after the abomination of desolation, which is the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel, still to come, seven years. The world's hatred for God the Father and for Christ is going to motivate unbelievers like never before to kill and persecute believers. You know what's going to happen with that persecution? It's going to reveal who's really saved and who's not. True believers will proclaim the truth. False believers, it'll reveal their lack of genuine safe, saving faith because they'll defect. They'll give in. They'll cave. Genuine believers are going to remain loyal to Christ. We'll stop there as far as studying the seals, that fifth seal. Again, I just want to emphasize, nothing that has happened since John had this vision could be the fulfillment of all, all these judgments. I can tell you what's definitely not, and that's the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It doesn't add up. It doesn't fit. It doesn't even come close. So a view of eschatology that believes that is not really looking at the facts, plus it's proven without a doubt the book of Revelation was not even written until 95 or 96 A.D. after that. No other event in history could you apply all this to. All the different events like Antiochus, Epiphanes, and 70 A.D., I mean, they all are, are precursors. They all add color. They all give you a little hint of the nature of the ultimate fulfillment, but they can't be taken as the adequate interpretation of this. But all these sealed judgments are just the beginning of horrific worldwide suffering that simple, the simple rebellious world will experience. Just the beginning of the birth pangs, far worse to come, especially when we get to the sixth seal and the trumpets and the bowls. You know what's still most important for us to know today? What's still most important for us to proclaim today is that right now, God is so patient. And his people are coming to him in this patience that he's exercising. 
to lead penitent sinners to come to Christ, to believe the gospel. The most important thing we can know is not when this is going to happen. Don't get caught up in all those websites like the Rapture Meter website and some of that that's out there. It's so ridiculous. Trying to interpret every little world event. I'm still going on today with Russia and Ukraine. Oh, oh, here, here's what this means. You don't know. We know this is going to happen in God's timetable. Right now, what we need to know is God's calling people through the gospel. So we proclaim that. We can tell people, though, there's going to come a time where he'll no longer be holding back his judgment, though, on those who reject it. We'll see it in the tribulation. Father, if nothing else, the blessing of studying this book for us now is the joy of knowing that no matter what else we might go through in this world, if our sins are forgiven and we're in Christ, we're not the ones to experience your wrath. We can marvel at the gospel because Jesus took all your wrath for our sins. I mean, the full cup of your anger, your holy anger and wrath for our sins. Jesus suffered all that. What you're going to pour out someday, Jesus took upon himself willingly so that we wouldn't have to experience your wrath. So thank you for the gospel. Thank you for our Savior. Thank you that our sins are forgiven if we've come to trust in him as the Lord and Savior of our life. May we be true to tell others where they can find forgiveness of sins. In Christ's name, amen.